Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, I'm sure you think a lot about paganism, right? It's not really a word that we use very often, but from the biblical perspective, the story that the scriptures are telling, it's kind of an important term. And it's often difficult for us to quantify what paganism is in the modern world, or even if it exists still. It's because the labels that we put on what I would call modern day paganism make it seem as though that we as a culture have distanced ourselves from religion itself. So there are people that describe themselves as atheists. Maybe you're one of them. Welcome. There are those that describe themselves as agnostic. Again, maybe you're one of them. Welcome. Or there's a whole new demographic that is emerging in American religious life. Those who describe themselves as not affiliated with any religious tradition at all. Uh, Ryan Burge, a pastor and sociologist, calls these the nuns. And Burge writes of the nuns. He says, by nearly all measures, this is nuns, N-O-N, not N-U-N, which would be a very different religious expression. Burge writes, by nearly all measures, the nuns now represent at least a fifth of all American adults, rivaling Catholics and evangelical Christians as the nation's largest cohort in terms of religious faith. He goes on to say, they are the fastest growing religious or non-religious cohort. Interesting. Now, it would be kind of strange to call someone a pagan today. Somebody who doesn't fit with your religious ideal or definition, if you call them a pagan, they might be offended by that, right? And it's just, it's not a word that we use much, but if we ground ourselves in a biblical understanding of humanity, what we've called a biblical anthropology, it's impossible from the standpoint of the scriptures for human beings not to worship. We were made to be worshiping creatures. Again, this is a biblical framework for what it means to be human. And throughout the biblical story, the contest is between proper worship of the one true God and worship of local deities and multitude of gods that each promise their own benefits, what the Bible calls idolatry. Isaiah 44 gives us a nice picture of this. Let's look in Isaiah 44 together. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know. And so they will be put to shame. Paul in Romans 1 will pick up on this theme as well. So if, if we were to go with the theory that paganism in our culture, in our modernized, in our scientifically oriented culture hasn't gone away completely, but is merely put on a different mask, what might we see as some of the common themes of a modern day paganism? Tara Isabella, in her incredible book, Strains Rights, writes of what this might look like in our own day and age. She writes, a religion of emotive intuition of commodified experience, of self-creation and self-improvement, and yes, selfies. A religion for a new generation of Americans raised to think of themselves both as capitalist consumers and as content creators. A religion decoupled from institutions, 
from creeds, from metaphysical truth claims about God or the universe, the way things are, but that still seeks in various and varying ways to provide us with the pillars of what religion always has, meaning, purpose, community, and ritual. Now, Ecclesia, my hope for us is that when we read the Bible, that it wouldn't feel so strange and so foreign to our lives, but that by mapping the world of the Bible, even though it is truly a foreign world, even though this text came to us initially in foreign languages, and it describes a time that is much different from our own, but by seeing their context, by exploring it, we can see our own world in a new light. And by hearing this incredible word of God, that, that though it's given in a specific context, supersedes and breaks the bonds of that context, that we would be met anew with the revelation of the God who loves us, and that we would see our time and place in a new light. So this brings us to our text as we continue our series on the book of Acts called Cathedrals, as we're reimagining and renewing and remembering the things that God has called us to, the mission that God has for us. This brings us to our text in Acts 14. Let's look at it together, beginning in verse 8. It says in Lystra, There was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. Now, throughout this series, we've been reflecting on what it means for the Spirit of God to be poured out and remembering that these stories and acts are not about some special time in history that happened way far off in the past, but we live in the same age as the apostles who were doing these incredible works because we have the same Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus who poured out His presence and His power upon everybody who receives His name and repents and follows His word way. Paul's initial presentation of the gospel here in Acts 14 is this is the first time that Paul is really confronted with a larger crowd of what we call pagans. Again, those who believe maybe in a uh, just a mismatch of all different kinds of uh, religions or they have their certain local deities that they worship. And Paul is presenting the story, the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done to these people. And he sees a man who has uh, an inkling of faith. And oftentimes when we're trying to be a people who are able to, to tell in our time and place what Jesus has done, we need to find those people that maybe the Spirit of God has been working on ahead of the time that we talk to them. We need to look for those things. And Paul sees this man. He's crippled, but he has this, this idea that maybe maybe this Jesus story is for him. Now, I realize that as we we read this story about Paul and Barnabas healing this man, you may be saying to yourself, well, I've never seen anybody healed of some chronic condition. Uh, If I were to see that, I would definitely believe in God. That would seal the deal for me. Well, a couple things on that. First, throughout the scriptures, miracles as we conceive of them, these these sort of of out-of-the-norm happenings, healings, these kinds of things, are, are never sufficient to sustain faith. The same people who literally walked on dry land, the slaves 
who walked out of Egypt because God himself parted the Red Sea and they walked across the land. They saw this incredible miracle, this miracle on a scale that few of us can even conceive of. These same people who see this miracle in Exodus 14, just a few chapters later, are bickering and complaining and wondering how God will ever take care of them and saying, oh, we wish we were back in Egypt. Jesus, in his life, says that, listen, even if you were to see a man raised from the dead, you still would not believe. And then do you know what he does? He goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. He says, all right, let's, let's prove it out. And then you know what happens? People don't believe. They not only want to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus. Miracles are not seen as enough to sustain our faith. And there are many streams of Christian expression throughout the world that seek miracles. They, they sort of work up the, themselves into a frenzy, trying to find the next thing, the next high. But that's not the mark of a faith in God that we see presented in the scriptures. But I also want to say that just because the miracles are not a means to an end, not because they don't uh, efficiently make us have faith, it doesn't mean that they're any less available to us where we sit, 21st century Americans, central New Jersey, right here and right now. The mystery of when and why and how the Spirit of God moves to heal and do all sorts of other incredible things. And when, when the Spirit of God doesn't move to do these things, it's just that. It's a mystery. Anybody who offers an explanation for why or why not God did something, unless they have a specific word from God and they're confident they've heard from the Lord, anybody who's offering that kind of thing, frankly, is overstepping their bounds. But we do know that God invites us to pray expectantly, not conjuring up some sort of self-belief or trying to fool our rationale, but because we know the character of God. That because of what he has done on the cross, one way or another, whether it's in this life or the next, sickness, disease, heartache, and grief do not get the last word. There will be a healing that extends throughout eternity, that because of what Jesus has done, we are healed. And how that plays out, how that works out in the day-to-day lives of our earthly existence, I don't know. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Romans 8 describes a groaning with longings too deep for words. And then Paul writes this. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ecclesia, one way or another, Healing is ours because of what Jesus has done. So as we reflect on this passage and we see the miraculous move of God, let it stir our hearts towards what God might want to do in our own day. As we reflect upon our own cultural moment, as we begin to see this story, as we we think about the rising uh, accumulation of the nuns, as we think about our world, sort of the rising tide of secularism, uh, Pastor Mark Sayers writes a lot about how we embody the power and the presence of God 
in the midst of these changing grounds. And he says, God's presence draws uh, close to empower his mission in the world and to reconnect us with our original purpose of spreading his glory to the ends of the earth. When renewal comes, we are empowered in that mission. The years of struggling in our own strength to complete his mission are replaced by a quickening as he becomes our primary power. Here in Acts 14, we see God's message announced with compassion and with power in the form of a miraculous healing. We cannot control what God does or doesn't do, but we can tune our lives to the power of his spirit. We can tap into his life as the source. And as the the sort of tide of secularism rises, as more people are walking away from any uh, acknowledged expression of faith, because they're like, that's just not, there's nothing in it. There's no life in it. There's an equal rising of tide of the people of God expressing faith, expressing a need for God to draw near and also for God's spirit to express his power. And this is what we see in the book of Acts. God meets the moment with his character. We see healings. We see his power expressed. And Ecclesia, I hope that we as a people long to see these things in our own day. Let's keep going here in Acts 14, verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice. Now the crowd's response calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. I'm sure Barnabas didn't let Paul forget that at some point when they laughed about this later. The crowd's response is one that is common in our culture. And it's a frequent move for both people who have grown up in a faith or who are new to the faith. The people see the power of God expressed and they want to name what has happened in their midst according to their own preconceived categories. Barnabas is Zeus, Paul, is Hermes. The crowd's determined to bring sacrifices to them. And what we see is that there is a collision of paradigms. Paul is telling a new story, a story about this Jesus who was crucified, dead, and buried, was resurrected from the dead to these people. But paganism's first instinct is to accommodate new stories into its existing framework. Again, this is where we have to understand the pagan undercurrents of our own age. It's easy for us to try to accommodate the Jesus story into our existing cultural frameworks. Again, Tara Isabella Burton writes insightfully of our age. She says, today's remixed, and this is what she refers to the spiritual but not religious crowd. Today's remixed, reject authority, institution, creed, and moral universalism. They value intuition, personal feeling, and experiences. They demand to rewrite their own scripts about how the universe and human beings operate, shaped by the twin forces of a creative communicative internet and consumer capitalism. Today's remix don't want to receive doctrine, to assent automatically to a creed. They want to choose and more often than not purchase the spiritual path that feels more authentic, more meaningful to them. Now, it's important for us 
to interrogate just how deeply our commitments to Jesus and our perceptions of what that means are shaped not by the power, compassion, or story of Jesus, but by our own cultural stories. Think about it this way. When I talk to people who are not followers of Jesus in places like coffee shops or bars or at school pickup, if I tell them about the work that we're doing with the food pantry or how we hosted a website to feed frontline workers throughout the pandemic, they're like, whoa, you guys are amazing. That's incredible. If I talk about our human need for authentic community and relationships, people are nodding their head. Yes, that's what we all want. But if I say, we, we don't truly flourish as a people until we find ourselves in the love of Jesus, repent of our selfish ways, and respond to him with a life of devotion and worship. They look at me like I have three heads. But it is fundamental, as we see throughout the book of Acts, and as Jesus is calling us to be partners in his mission, it is fundamental to our witness that we both tell and live the Jesus story, empowered by the Spirit of God. Look at Paul's response to the cultural accommodation of the pagans at Lystra. Look at what he does in Acts 14, verse 15. He says, friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways, yet he has not left himself without a witness and doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Paul clarifies the story that he is telling and he calls them to repentance. He doesn't say, sure, follow Zeus and Hermes, just sprinkle a little Jesus into that. He says, a new day has dawned. Those old ways won't do anymore. Paul also beautifully weaves together the God that has been present from creation throughout the story of every nation, that he has been present prior to the revelation of Jesus. These peoples that were not central to the salvation story, like the Jewish people were, God has still been with them, providing for them. Paul bears witness that this miracle that has been uh, performed in their midst, this man who couldn't walk but now can walk, is because they worship and proclaim the true God who made heaven and earth. Paul acknowledges God's care for all people, and he recalls them to rethink the story, to turn from idols, which as Isaiah tells us again, are really just their own ways, to turn from those things, these lesser things, and to embrace the life-giving way of the living God. And Ecclesia, I want to invite us to consider how much we're trying to accommodate, to comport the world's ways, the ways of idolatry and exhaustion into our own version of the Jesus story. The people at Lystra, through their misconception of the Jesus story, have given us, the readers of the story, a great gift. The two stories, the Jesus story and the story of our own ways, the story of paganism and idolatry, don't fit nicely together with one another. Are we trying to have Jesus and to follow and serve our own idol of perfectionism? Are we trying to have Jesus and serve and give offerings to our own idol of workaholism? Are we trying to have Jesus and his ways and yet conceive and hold on to our own vision of sexuality? 
Are we trying to have Jesus and at the same time have our own vision and version of how we spend our money? See, Ecclesia, the Jesus story is better because it's not the story of what we can do. The story is not about the sacrifice that we can bring, how we can offer our sacrifices to placate the gods and hopefully get to a, a, some good place. No, the story is about what God has done, about Jesus' sacrifice because of his great love for us, his compassion, his healing, his power, and it is already done. It is the good news that Jesus is not Zeus hurling thunderbolts from his distant throne in the heavens, but he is the God who comes near to us, the word made flesh, who made his dwelling among us, who walks in our midst. It's so ironic that the Lystrans intuitively understand that the story that Paul and Barnabas are telling is about the gods coming down to them in human form, but they misunderstand that Paul and Barnabas are not proclaiming what they have done. They're proclaiming what Jesus has done. And the way that they're performing these miracles are through Jesus's power. And for the last several weeks, my family and I have been in Oklahoma. And recently I was able to drive through the town that I grew up in. And so much of it has changed. And I drove from the house that you know, was the place I lived until I moved to New Jersey. I drove from there up down to where I went to high school, some five or six miles away, and just driving those streets. And the Spirit of God was ministering to me in such beautiful ways. And in many ways, they were the, the, sort of the ways that you would think bring about shame, you know, just remembering decisions you've made or the person that you were. And just being, something about being in the place that you were formed reminds you of that. And it's like those moments of regret or embarrassment, but also this incredible testimony of God's goodness to me. To think about the place that I was, the person that I was, the way that I saw the world, and to see what Jesus has shown himself to be in my life. And friends, I don't have it all figured out. I, I, I'm not some perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I was just so grateful in that moment to think of what God had saved me from, to think of what God had begun ever so slowly to make me into. And I just want to say, just to bear witness for a moment, that the Jesus story is better. The God's story that he's writing, and he's inviting us to turn from these worthless things, to turn from our own ways, and to follow his ways. That way will always bring us to flourishing. That way will always bring us to rest because it's not about what we do. It's about what God has done. And I just want to invite you. Maybe you've been at this following Jesus, apprenticing yourself to his life for a while. I think sometimes we miss the power of the story. We miss its power, not just for ourselves, but for others because we forget what we were. Or we glorify what we were in a way that doesn't glorify what we are now. That doesn't honor that what we are now, that what God has made us to be through his blood and redemption is better. And I just want to invite you this week, take some time to reflect upon that. Take some time because, I, at least for me, it leads me to a profound gratitude. And also a profound sense of longing. We walk in the midst of people who are like the people here in Acts 14. They don't know the story. 
They have misconceptions about the story. They have their own responses to the story. We have been called as witnesses to the beauty of our God. Would we see the urgency of the moment? Would we be a people who are so immersed in the beauty of this story that we can't help but share it? We can't help but do the slow work of clarifying it. You know, for Paul and Barnabas, it would have been much better had they just let the people think that they were Zeus and Hermes. That would have gone much better for them because the way this story ends is that there are religious leaders who stir up the crowd at Lystra to stone them nearly to death. And in fact, it's only because people gather around them and pray for them that it seems like Paul and Barnabas are spared. Paul and Barnabas' testimony, their witness here is costly. But they would be the first to tell us that even though there is a great cost associated with following Jesus, the cost of not turning from our small ways is so much greater. And the the gift that God gives to us, and that is his presence, his love for us, his rest, always exceeds everything that we could ever give to him. And so, Ecclesia, I want to invite you to just consider that. If you're hearing my voice and you're like, I... You know, I kind of feel like the pagans. I don't know this story at all, and I'm trying to figure it out. Maybe this is the Spirit of God saying, see the story. See it anew. See it afresh. See it perhaps for the first time. I want to invite you just to respond with your heart. Say, yes, Lord, that is for me. To respond by saying, I I want to walk into this. And then send me an email, ian at ecclesianj.com. Love to talk with you about next steps. Love to be a companion on this journey. And I can bear witness throughout the course of my life. It is a journey. It's not up and to the right. It's a winding road. But what we find is that our God, the God who comes to us in human form, is the one who walks the road with us. And he is the one who walks the road that we cannot walk ourselves, the, the walk of salvation and redemption. And he invites us into his life. Wherever you are, I pray that this story invites us to respond, to put away our worthless ways and to receive the gift of his great love for us. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.